take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 11. We're going to look at the second section of this chapter, which describes Jesus' initial interaction with this first family of Bethany, Martha, Mary, concerning their brother Lazarus, who has died. In December of 1918, the newspaper, the New York Globe, began publishing a panel cartoon entitled Champs and Chumps. And the author and illustrator of this cartoon would portray the unusual athletic accomplishments that may not normally make the headlines in the newspaper. And so here, this is actually the very first publication from 1918 of this um, panel cartoon, and there he is highlighting an Australian man who jumped rope 11,810 times in four hours. He's highlighting this world record 100-yard three-legged race in only 11 seconds, and also another gentleman who um, walked backwards across the continental United States. Well, in less than a year, the author of this cartoon apparently ran out of athletic oddities And he started introducing the world to some other oddities, strange curiosities, and in so doing, he changed the name from Champs and Chumps to Believe It or Not. And the author was Mr. Robert Ripley. Uh, In Robert Ripley's Believe It or Not column, it became syndicated across the United States to, to more than 80 million readers. He regularly published books of these cartoons, and they would be sold as well. Uh, It was later adapted into radio programs, TV programs, and there are now 29 museums worldwide. You may have even been to this one in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Uh, Ripley's organization calls these museums auditoriums, auditoriums. And so here's uh, one of those auditoriums. Well, Robert Ripley's Believe It or Not uh, has a website as well. I've never been to that website before this week when I was thinking about this and prepping for this message. And I came across some of these interesting headlines on the website. The first one was this, Satellite Spots Adorable Bear Face on Mars. Believe it or not. Uh, the next one was this one, Colorado Man Uses Nose to Push a Peanut 12.6 Miles Up Pikes Peak. Why, we have to ask the question, but believe it or not. And then finally this one, for 30 years, Garfield phones appeared on French beaches without explanation. Hundreds of phones per year, believe it or not. Now, Ripley's franchise was built, and he built an entire empire on these strange, unbelievable, unexpected, bizarre oddities. They can't possibly be true, but they are. Well, Jesus asks a similar question here in John chapter 11 to Lazarus' sister, Martha. Not believe it or not, but his question was simply, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus began to present some truths and some realities about who he is, his nature, his character, and what he has the power to do. And he concluded that presentation to Martha with this question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And Jesus would ask us an eternally important question this morning as well. Do you believe this? Now, again, this is uh, whenever Jesus is coming into Bethany. He was up in the north part of Israel, uh, near where John the Baptist was baptizing at the beginning of his ministry. He received the message from Martha and Mary that Lazarus was sick unto death. And as we saw last week, he delayed two days in coming to their side. 
When he finally does arrive, the text we'll read today tells us that Lazarus had been dead for four days, and Jesus shows up. And as he is approaching their home, Martha goes out onto the road to greet him, to meet him as he's coming. And in that conversation with her, he asked this most important question, do you believe this? So look with me in your Bible or on the Bible study outline as we read John 11, verses 17 through 27. This is the word of God. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The question for Martha and the question for us today is this. Do you believe this? Do you believe Jesus's self-identification as the resurrection and the life? Because here's the thing, this question, do you believe this? Jesus is not a host of a first century game show. This is not just a question of trivia. This is the most consequential question of your life and of Martha's life. Because the question has to do with what ultimately the entire theme and thesis of the 21 chapters of the Gospel of John are all about. It's about believing. Believing. John wrote the Gospel of John that he might engender in his first century readers and engender in us belief, faith in Jesus. Most modern works put their thesis at the beginning of the book or the beginning of the paper. John puts his thesis at the end. Notice what he says in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. John writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, included what's written in chapter 11, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This whole episode here in John chapter 11 is written to us in order that we might believe the presentation of who Jesus is, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who is coming into the world to save sinners. So from this encounter that Jesus has with Martha, as he finally arrives in the village of Bethany, I want us to consider three things about faith, three things about believing that emerge from the text. The first one is this. Number one, I want us to think about the opportunity for faith. There's an opportunity here with Martha for her to express faith in Jesus. Here she is right smack dab in the middle of her deep, painful grief, and Jesus shows up. And in the middle of that grief, in the middle of that pain, 
is this opportunity. Will she believe in Jesus or not? And we can see that Martha has this opportunity of faith because as we consider Martha, she's already pretty far down the road in faith. In fact, I would say it's good for us to look at Martha and where she is in this journey of faith because I have a feeling that some of you are in the same place that she's in, the same category, if you will, where she is. You may discover some things that you have in common with her. First of all, I want us to see that she has an opportunity for faith because she knew Jesus personally. Martha knew Jesus personally. If you were here last week, again, we considered the fact that in verse 3, these sisters, Martha and Mary, had sent a message to Jesus some one or two days away by messenger, your friend, the one whom you love, is sick unto death. Why did they ask Jesus that? Well, they already had a previous connection. They were already on a personal level with him. They felt the comfort. And John's commentary in verse 5 is now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus was familiar with this family. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, you've probably heard this story or read it, is that in Luke chapter 10, it, it records the account of when Jesus was there at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' home. It's something of a large gathering of friends, and it's a dinner party. And Martha, busy Martha, is concerned with all of the happenings and all of the preparation and everything that goes in to pulling off a large dinner party. We've got a few Super Bowl parties happening tonight in our church family, and it requires a lot of food. I've got eight racks of ribs smoking right now. I'm not telling you where we're going to be, so you can come eat them. But th- this is preparation, right? We've got to do some things to get ready for this party. And so Martha comes up to Jesus and said, Lord, I'm doing all the work, and Mary's just sitting at your feet listening to you teach. What did Jesus say? Mary has chosen the better portion. She's chosen to be with me. And now here it seems Martha is a person of action, and she comes out to meet Jesus at the road. It's safe to say, I believe, that this family was a relatively well-to-do family in Bethany. How do we know that? For one, they had the resources, they had the home to throw a large dinner party. That costs money. Further, we, we can see in the very next chapter that Mary anoints Jesus with some very costly, very expensive ointment. You don't get that unless you have some means, some resources. Further, we can see next week in the next section of this chapter that there were many mourners who came to Bethany from Jerusalem. A common practice in the first century was that you would actually hire wailers. There would be paid mourners who would come to wail and to mourn and to cry. That was just part of the custom in first century Judaism. And the text says there are many mourners here. So it's safe to assume that this family is a family of means, and Jesus is on very familiar terms with them. I mean, think about it. Where else in the Gospels do we have not one, not two, but three members of the same family mentioned by name in multiple Gospel accounts as having a close connection with Jesus and whom Jesus said he loved them? This is the only family I know of. So this, he, she has a great opportunity here because she has a personal relationship with Jesus already. She is familiar with Jesus. She knows Jesus has an exemplary life. Jesus is unique. He's one of a kind. He, she knows, and all of the family knew, that Jesus was one who would strengthen the weak, who would help the downtrodden, who would lift up the oppressed and the abused. And so this, of course, made him very compelling 
to Martha, to Mary, and to Lazarus. So this is the first opportunity for faith she has. She knows Jesus personally. is very familiar with him. Here's the second thing. She trusted Jesus powerfully. She trusted Jesus powerfully. Again, at the beginning of this chapter, portrays Martha and Mary in a very desperate situation. The brother, the one whom Jesus loved, is sick unto death. And so they send a messenger for him to come. And then in verse 20, Martha alone went to look for Jesus in that sense of desperation. And we can speculate again because Martha's a, a person of action. She's the one looking for Jesus and goes out to Jesus and marries the more contemplative one who's just hanging out in the house. We don't know that. The text doesn't say that. Regardless, Martha went out because she knew Jesus could help and she needs Jesus's help. And in verse 21, she expresses a tremendous, a tremendous amount of confidence in the power that Jesus has. Notice what she says in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's some significant confidence. You, if you would have been here, Lord, you have the power. You have the connection to God that my brother would not have died. But then she goes a step further in verse 22, and she identifies the source of his power. She says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, I don't think, in my humble opinion, that at this point, Martha is anticipated or asking or even expecting Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. The reason I know that is because in verse 39, when Jesus says, move the stone, she says, Lord, don't do it. It's going to stink. So she's not anticipating Lazarus to be resurrected from the dead, but she does recognize Jesus has a unique, a special connection to God. We know, Lord, that whatever you ask God, he's going to do for you. I told you last week that uh, many of you will often ask me to pray for you, and you'll call me, you'll text me, you'll Facebook message me, and I appreciate those, and I always do pray for you. I'm honored to do that. But you need to know, I don't have a special Jesus phone, a bat phone to heaven, right? Uh, I think sometimes people think this, that, well, I really got this crisis. I've asked a couple friends to pray about it. It gets a little worse. Well, now I need to ask the pastor to pray. Listen, all of us have equal access to God through Christ to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. Again, I'm happy and honored to pray for you, but I'm no special in my prayers any more than any of you are if you're a Christian. Jesus is special. Jesus is unique. And she recognizes you are unique. You have access to God. You have a connection to God that is beyond uh, normal. And Martha is right in saying that. So think about this opportunity for faith she has. For one, she recognizes that Jesus has unique power and access to supernatural power, and she has great familiarity with Jesus. She knows him personally. But watch this third thing about Martha. She confessed truth properly. One thing we notice about Martha is that she has a solid, basic, fundamental, doctrinal belief system. She believed the truth of the Bible. She was orthodox in her theology. We see this in verse 23 and 24. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Notice what Martha says to him. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, we know the end of the story that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But at this point, she didn't know the story. And she didn't know that that's what Jesus was referring to. She assumed 
that what Jesus is referring to is the final resurrection of those who are dead in Christ, those who are dead saints, will be resurrected on the last day to life forever and eternally with God. Martha believed in the personal, physical, bodily resurrection for those who are the dead children of God. This is significant. This is orthodox doctrine. This is clear, fundamental theology. Now, as you've probably heard before, within first century Judaism, there was a division among these two main sects known as uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the division between them included this subject, among others. The Pharisees, we would consider to be the more conservative theologically, even though they were the staunch critics of Jesus, even though they were hypocritical, they fully believed the Bible and even the supernatural things in the Old Testament. They believed in the final resurrection on the last day. That's the Pharisees. The Sadducees, however, did not believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels, and they didn't believe in a resurrection of the dead on the last day. That's why they were sad, you see. Very good. So there's this division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But the Pharisees held the majority opinion. Most Jews in the first century did believe these truths. Why? Just like Martha believed it. Because this is what the Old Testament teaches. This is what the Old Testament taught. Let me show you just a few examples. Uh, In the book of Job, which is perhaps the oldest book in our Bible, Job writes this in chapter 19, verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last... He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. What's he talking about? This resurrection, physical resurrection, even though his earthly flesh will die and will be destroyed, I know I'll be resurrected to see God personally. There's a Psalm of David, Psalm 16. He writes this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that's the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's a Psalm of Asaph, Psalm 73. He writes, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. And finally, the prophet Daniel writes this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame, and everlasting contempt. So the Sadducees didn't believe in the supernatural or eternal resurrection because they didn't believe the Bible. But the Pharisees did, and so did Martha. She says, Jesus, I know there will be this great resurrection on the last day. She confessed truth properly. Now I want you to think about Martha for a second and all the things she has going for her. She personally was familiar with Jesus. She saw his exemplary life. She understood the fact that he had a special connection to God, that he demonstrated power that could only come from God. And finally, she had a very orthodox doctrine. She had a very clear theology. And you may be here with all those same things. You may have grown up in church. You may have heard about Jesus your whole life, have a very clear familiarity with Jesus. Not only that, Not only may you be familiar with Jesus, you may personally believe that he is unique. He's one of a kind. But beyond that, you may have a very solid, orthodox doctrine. You've got all of your theological T's crossed and all of your doctrinal I's 
dotted. You are clear. You're orthodox. But just like Martha, you may not have crossed the threshold of faith that Jesus is pressing Martha toward. You may have all these things right and in alignment, like Martha. But Jesus says, do you believe this? Many of our students are parts of Christian clubs in their schools, FCA, Young Life, and they can think, well, if I go to this Christian club, well, I'm good. On our college campuses, we've got all kinds of campus ministries. We can think, well, if I go to this campus ministry, whenever I'm in college, yeah, I made party a little bit, I go to the campus ministry, I'm good. We can even think that if we're from a long-term generational Christian family, I'm good. Think about Bryant and Kendall that we just baptized today. Their parents are members of this church, their grandparents are members of this church, and their great-grandparents are members of this church. Praise the Lord. They were brought up in this fertilized garden of biblical truth and faith. But until they personally crossed the threshold of faith, they were not a fruit-producing believer in the garden of Jesus. You must, you must believe what Jesus says about himself. That's why he presses the question to Martha. Do you believe this? What is the this? I am the resurrection and the life. That's what you must believe. And that leads right to the second point I want us to see. Not only the opportunity for faith, but the object of faith. Verse 25 records the fifth I am statement of Jesus in John's gospel. There are seven total that John organizes this gospel account around. So far we've seen in chapter 6, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, we've seen I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, we've seen I am the door of the sheep and also I am the good shepherd. And now here in chapter 11, the fifth I am statement, we'll see here in chapter 14 in several weeks, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then chapter 15, I am the true vine. But here we have this fifth record of an I am statement from Jesus in the Gospel of John. I am the resurrection and the life. What does this mean? I am, as we've discussed before in the previous four, I am is the personal name of God. It is the ego eimi in Greek. It is the Yahweh in the Old Testament. When God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, he said, I am the all-sufficient one, the self-sufficient one. And here Jesus says to Martha this unique one-on-one revelation, I am. Do you get this, Martha? I am. I am what? I am the resurrection. You've just professed an orthodox belief in the future resurrection and the last day, Martha. Do you realize I am the resurrection? The only reason anybody will come out of their graves and live forever with God is because of me. I'm the one who will energize that. I'm the one who supplies that. I'm the one who empowers that. I am, Martha, the resurrection. And what else? The life. Jesus is the source of all life. Emotional life, spiritual life, and friend, even physical life. 
If you're here this morning and you're alive, and I think you all are, if your lungs are breathing, if your heart is beating, if your brain synapses are firing, every single action, Jesus is giving you life. He is the source of your life. Do you recognize this? And so he, he says to Martha, who's the object of your faith? Is it me? Not just this person, you know, on a familiar terms that's kind to people and has an exemplary moral life. Not just someone who has a connection with the Creator. Do you recognize me as God? As the source of all resurrection? As the source of all life? And within just a, listen, handful of days from this interaction right here in John 11, just a few days from here, a little over a week, Jesus will prove he's the resurrection and the life because he will be beaten by Roman guards beyond recognition. He will be impaled on a Roman cross where he will die. He will be buried in a shallow grave like Lazarus is buried in a shallow grave. But on that first Easter Sunday morning, Jesus proved what he claims right here. He is the resurrection and the life. And after communicating this to her, after making this clear declaration of his identity, he gives the most penetrating question. Do you believe this? And friend, that's the most important question you could ever answer. Do you believe this? Why? Because Martha is on the road, but she's not there yet. And Jesus is not content to leave her on this side of the threshold of faith in him. Jesus doesn't want to let her stay there. And friend, Jesus doesn't want to let you stay there. She has this basic theological orthodoxy set, set but she needs to believe in Jesus. You know, the Bible is filled with people who had accurate orthodoxy, solid belief system, respect for Jesus, but yet they weren't part of the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 12, there's an account of a, a scribe. He was this religiously educated individual. And he comes to Jesus, and he presents to Jesus a theological pop quiz. He's going to ask Jesus a theology question. And the question is basically this. Jesus, what is the, what is the most important law in our Old Testament? What is the basis of the law? And Jesus responds to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And what does the scribe say? This teacher of the law, the scribe says, A plus Jesus on the pop quiz. You're exactly right. How did Jesus respond to him? Notice Mark 12, 34. Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now you can take that as good news. You're close. But you can also take that as incredibly negative news. You're not in. You have all of your theology lined up. You, you know the stuff. You know the facts. You're not far from the kingdom of God. We see another example here in John's gospel. In chapter 2, we find, first of all, the first miracle that John records of Jesus, the turning of the water into wine. 
and his reputation begins to spread, his popularity begins to grow, and then he goes into Jerusalem, he goes into the temple complex during the Passover festival, and he begins to drive out all of the money changers and the sellers, and his popularity begins to grow even more. Who is this guy that is exercising unseen and unheard of authority in the temple complex? And notice what the response of the people was to one, the miracle, and two, the authority he exercised in the temple, driving out the rank people. He says this in in chapter 2, verse 23. John writes, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Well, that's good news, right? That's what the gospel of John is about. It's about believing. Good on you, Jesus. You got many people believing you when they saw the signs that he was doing. Look at verse 24, though. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Interesting, the word entrust in verse 24, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. The exact same word is believe in verse 23. You could translate it like this. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. They said, this, is a, this could possibly be the Messiah. I mean, who else shows this power? Who else can do these signs? Who comes among these rank political people and just shows great authority? Well, he probably has the capacity to lead us in a revolt over Rome, to restore Israel to our former glory on the international scene. Yes, Jesus, we believe in you. And Jesus said, I don't believe in you. I don't believe in you. Growing up in Florida... In my childhood and teenage years, as you might guess, I never played hockey. Further, though my mom um, took me fishing a lot with a cane pole and earthworms, we never went ice fishing in Florida. Crazy, right? I've never walked on a frozen lake. Anybody here walked on a frozen lake? Now, if you're from up north in the frozen tundra of the great white north, and you grew up there, you likely grew up ice fishing or skating on frozen ponds, or maybe even if you are a semi-driver, you were an ice road trucker, right? It's fascinating to think about that. If you've ever, and I haven't ever, but I would imagine your first time stepping on a frozen lake, it's a little scary. Is this thing going to hold me up? You might step on that ice with a little fear and trepidation, maybe some shaky knees. Is this going to crack underneath my weight, which is increasing by the month, by the way? Is it going to fall? But you walk out. Let me ask you a question. What held you up? Was it your faith or was it the object of your faith? It was the ice. Friends, you can have a weak, shaky knee faith. And some of you do. There's some questions I don't have answered, Pastor. There's some things I don't have figured out. But are you stepping out in faith in Jesus? Are you trusting in him as the great I am, the resurrection and the life? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he proved that he is a valuable object of faith because after being beaten beyond recognition, he was resurrected from the dead. And if that Jesus is the object of your faith, though you may have a weak faith, a shaky faith, you can know that you know that you know that you have life 
not because of the measure of your faith, but because of the object of your faith. And Jesus is pressing Martha. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. But that leads to the third and final truth I want us to consider from this passage. The opportunity of faith she has, the object of faith, but finally, the outcome of faith. What's on the other side of the heart of faith that expresses trust, dependence, hope, confidence in Jesus? Look again at verse 25. Jesus says to her, whoever believes. Have we heard this before in, John, in the book of John? Yeah, John chapter 3, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. According to Jesus, the outcome of our faith comprises two things here. Number one, though you will experience physical, natural death, if you believe in Jesus, you'll never die. The other thing Jesus says is, if you live right now physically, you'll never die spiritually. He's kind of doing a play on words here. He's, he's bouncing back and forth between spiritual life and physical life, between natural living and supernatural living. This is the outcome of faith, that right now, though you are physically dying, right? We're all headed to the grave. He says, if you trust in me, you're never going to die. And he says, if you do die, you'll always live. This is the promise, the outcome of faith. But not only this outcome of faith in this promise here, but we also see an outcome of faith in Martha in her personal public profession. We had three people make public profession of Jesus this morning. And in verse 27, we see Martha making a public personal profession of faith in Jesus. Notice what she says. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, what is she saying here? Lord, you're the ruler, you're the master, you're the boss. I believe, I have faith, I have trust. Though it may be shaky faith, what is she believing in? The object of her faith, that he is the Christ, the promised Messiah of God. But not just that, that he's deity, that he's God in human flesh. You are the Son of God. And that he's coming on mission. He's coming into the world. This is her confession of faith. But even at that, think about it. Even at that, this is pretty outlandish faith, right? This is pretty incredible faith, trust, belief. This is Jesus of Nazareth. It could have been Jeff from Saudi Daisy. He's just a man from up region north of where we are. He's just a human being who came down here to Bethany to Lookout Valley. He's just a guy who had a physical life. This is pretty crazy that Martha expresses this faith in this man. And if you do believe like Martha believes in this passage, and this man, who is the Son of God, it will radically change everything. It will radically 
change everything. If these things are true about Jesus, shouldn't these truths color every decision of our lives? If these things are true about Jesus, shouldn't this inform every motive, every action, every activity, every pastime, every line item in our family budget? Shouldn't this truth inform absolutely everything about our lives? If this is true, in 1 Corinthians 15, at the end of that book, the Apostle Paul begins talking about the fact of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that he did rise from the dead, but then also how that should impact our lives. And he talked about how confidence in the resurrection of Jesus should bring a radical response in the disciples' life. And he concludes that discussion with this really curious comment. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 19. He poses it like this. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, the here and now, the earthly life, he says, we are of all people most to be pitied. Think about that. If the world out there looked at your life, and if Jesus wasn't really resurrected from the dead, let, let's say next week some archaeologists and researchers say through DNA evidence we have found the bones of Jesus of Nazareth. He was never resurrected from the dead. What about your life would change? Free up your Sunday mornings, maybe. What about your life would change if Jesus was not resurrected from the dead? And Paul says, of all people, if we only have hope in Jesus because of his model of morality and his example of kindness, if we only have Jesus for this life, we are pitiful. We are a pitiful people. Why? Because of the radical sacrifices we make for the gospel of Christ. The missionary martyr Jim Elliott put it like this in his journal as a college student. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Do people look at your life as a Christian and say, what a fool. That is folly, the way they're living their life. How pitiful that they devote their lives to the gospel. Does the world look at us and say, foolish? Or are we pretty much 98% just like everybody else? If we are, maybe the proclamation of Jesus that he is the resurrection and the life hasn't really grabbed our soul. We all will die, but not everyone will really die. The message of the false prosperity gospel today is your best life now. The message of the gospel of Jesus, your best life later. Later. The promise is that when your heart does stop beating, when your lungs do stop breathing, when your synapses in your brain stop firing and there's no more neurological activity, in that next instant, you're in the presence of Jesus. This is the reality and this is the promise we have. In that next instant, 
you will know that you have placed your faith in the object in Jesus that is eternal, that is forever. And I would ask you the same question that Jesus asked. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And that leads to my last thought. Would your life make sense to the world if there was no empty tomb of Jesus?